Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, March the 19th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recent security talks held between the Republic of Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Southern African states of Zimbabwe and Zambia have signed an ECHO Systems Agreement. We'll have details on that as well. The um, British Home Secretary um, has visited uh, the East African state of Rwanda, and there has been an attack on a mine in the Central African Republic where nine Chinese nationals, among others, were killed. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on International Women's History Month. We cover the sudden death of South African artist uh, Gloria Boseman. Later, we will reexamine the lifetimes and contributions of Claudia Jones and Lorraine Hanbury. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the Republic of South Africa with the legendary uh, Letta Mbulu uh, from the album entitled Naturally. Let's listen in. Oh, <laughs> 
Welcome back, Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program. And uh, that was, of course, uh, the music and voice of the South African singer Leta Mbulu. That was uh, from a 1973 release entitled Naturally. And right now, we want to move right into uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Uh, Angolan uh, President Jao Lorenko held a three-hour private meeting in Luanda on Saturday uh, with uh, his Democratic Republic of Congo counterpart, Felix uh, Chesakete. The talk came a day after the Angolan Parliament approved a year-long deployment of up to 500 soldiers to the troubled Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, Luanda said the contingent would only be moved when it was certain that the right conditions existed in the cantonment areas. In other news, 
Zambia and Zimbabwe are set to conclude an agreement which is expected to foster transnational cooperation in ecosystems management through the establishment, development, and management of the Lower Zambezi Mana Pools Transfrontier Conservation Area. The TFCA development plan will be funded by the Global and Facility 6. Speaking at yesterday's post-cabinet briefing, Acting Information, Publicity, and Broadcasting Service Minister Jenfan Musweri said the Memorandum of Understanding on the LOZAMAP, the TFCA, had been approved by Cabinet and its finalization would make way for the two countries to start implementing initiatives for the development of the area. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Britain's government uh, said earlier today that it could start deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda in the next few months, but only if the UK courts rule that the controversial policy is legal. The Home Office said it was aiming to start flights before the summer, as Home Secretary Swela Braverman visited the East African country to reinforce the Conservative government's commitment to the plan. In the Rwandan capital, Kigali, she met with President Paul Kagame and Foreign Minister Vincent Baruta, visited accommodation intended to house deportees from the UK, and laid a brick at another housing development for migrants. The progress is expected to build more than 1,000 houses. And finally, in the Central African Republic, suspected rebel storms, a Chinese-operated gold mining site that had recently been launched inside the CAR, killing nine Chinese nationals and wounding two others earlier today, according to authorities. The attack came just days after gunmen kidnapped three Chinese nationals in the country's west near the border with Cameroon prompting acting President Faustine Akitwadera to travel to China in a bid to reinsure investors. The attack on the Shimbolo gold mine began around 5 a.m. when the gunman overpowered the site's guards and opened fire, said Abel Mati Pata, mayor of the nearby town of Bambari. The mining site launch had taken place just days earlier, he added. And with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, also, if uh, you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. 
And uh, also, uh, just recently, uh, earlier this week, um, earlier last week, uh, the South Africa lost uh, one of its uh, pioneering uh, jazz artists, Gloria Bossman. And, of course, uh, she passed uh, suddenly in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, Here's a song uh, from Gloria Bossman entitled Play Me the Love Songs.
Welcome back. And that was uh, music from Gloria Boseman, uh, who uh, joined the ancestors just uh, several days ago in the Republic of South Africa, one of uh, South Africa's uh, more modern uh, jazz artists, uh, drawing on the legacy of people such as Miriam Makeba and Hugh Masekela and Letta Mbulu, who we heard earlier today, as well as people such as uh, Dalla Brand, now known as Abdullah Ibrahim, and many others. Uh, let's listen to a South African Broadcasting Corporation report on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Gloria Boseman. Fellow musicians say Boseman was always destined for greater heights. I met Gloria in the late 1980s. And then early 90s, we did some work in Market Theatre, sharing stage with all the late Mama Sophie Mkina, Jennifer Ferguson. And um, it was evident those years, because she was a teenager, was in my 30s, that she was destined for a bigger stage, you know, to be among the top in the world. Hailed as a multifaceted artist. Whenever she spoke, I heard because she spoke with so much great vibration. Um, Gloria, mother, grandmother, daughter, historian, composer, singer, woman, sister, friend. She, was, she embodied these incredible characters and with so much ele- ele- elegance and panache, you know. Um, thank you, Gloria, for allowing me to know you. As a mother, as a daughter, as a lover, as a leader, as a teacher, as a mentor in whatever she did. She was the strength yet vulnerable to. All my moments with Gloria over the years were glorious. That's why I used to call her glorious. I'm speechless. Yeah, I don't know what to say. All has, has been said about Gloria. I can proudly say I brought that girl up. And I'm proud and I'm grateful to, to, to have been able to do that. She was indeed glorious. May you say rest in peace, glory. I will always honor you. And thank you to the family for giving us this wonderful soul. Friends say Bosman was the leader of the pack. That's just how powerful and how much Gloria was loved, such that other talents sacrificed their own blood for Gloria. Her family, still inconsolable. May her spirit live on. May she continue to soar. And um, on behalf of the entire family, friends and beloved, kindly accept our deepest gratitude. We thank you, every team, individual members, the host, the organizers, colleagues, to everybody that is present in paying your last respects to our ray of sunshine. Gloria Bosman will be laid to rest on Sunday.
Welcome back, and uh, that was a tribute to Gloria Bosman, uh, who joined the ancestors just uh, several days ago in the Republic of South Africa at the age of 50. And this is uh, International uh, Women's History Month, and uh, we want to move into a segment that pays tribute to Claudia Jones, uh, the legendary uh, Trinidadian-born activist or organizer, uh, leftist, communist, Pan-Africanist. She, of course, uh, grew up uh, politically in the United States and became a tenant organizer, a prolific writer and public speaker and public intellectual in the United States. She was targeted uh, by uh, the U.S. government uh, during uh, the so-called Cold War period, put on trial uh, with other members of uh, the left in the United States eventually sentenced to prison. She spent one year there. And then, of course, uh, was deported uh, to Great Britain. Uh, After being deported, uh, she became a leading activist uh, in England uh, during the late 1950s and early 60s, the founder uh, of the uh, British uh, Carnival uh, Festival uh, that uh, celebrated uh, Caribbean African culture. And uh, also a journalist, and um, let's listen in to an interview with Carol Boyce Davis, who is a political biographer of uh, Claudia Jones, has written uh, numerous papers and books on her life, uh, times, and contributions. Let's listen in and pay tribute to Claudia Jones. Carol Boyce Davies, welcome to Fellow Friends. Good morning. Well, yeah. I just morning. I just think good ever, good whatever. Now, so. for my audience who may not have come across your work, you are a distinguished professor at Cornell University, and you're also the author of the seminal Left of Karl Marx, which I have here. And yeah, we've both got our copies here. And I wanted to use this episode today to talk, first of all, about your iconic book, but also talk about the lady behind it, Claudia Jones. But before we get into talking about her, could you talk to me about the idea um, of this book and your process in writing it? Well, it it, um, developed organically. And I, I love to say it's actually the spirit of Claudia Jones actually pushed this book all the way to the end. But I didn't start off like that in, in terms of an academic project and then you begin to do the archival work and schematize it and then go all the way to the end. It sort of came together almost like a quilt of different pieces. So that's what I want you to imagine when you think of it. Um, and simply because um, something like 1988, unless people like you are probably not even born yet, um, I met Buzz Johnson, who had just then published a small book uh, on Claudia Jones, and it 
title was I Think of My Mother, which is actually a line uh, from a quote from Claudia Jones talking about how she got to be an activist because of what happened to her own mother. And um, he gave me that book. I bought it. Um, and I took it back with me uh, to the United States. Um, and then teaching Caribbean um, women, Caribbean, sorry, teaching Caribbean literature, teaching black women writers. For some reason, I would always go back to it and select a little piece of it to use in my teaching process. Um, and then I was asked to be part of a black feminist seminar at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, they were inviting people who were quite um, well-known as feminist, black feminist theorists. I'm talking about people like Bell Hooks. I'm talking about people like Deborah McDowell and others. Um, and um, because I was invited and I worked on the Caribbean and the diaspora broadly defined, I thought that it would make better sense for me if I did something that looked at the black feminist um, scholarship, but not in the US linear format, but looked at what else was there. And I went back to the Claudia Jones um, book. And of course, going back to that um, uh, book by Buzz Johnson, and then using it to then do additional research, I discovered there really was not much written on her at all. That was really quite shocking. And at that point, when I started to dig then and find additional material, there was only like a clip file in the Schomburg with one um, Schomburg Library, it's a famous library in New York, where her um, papers are now housed. Um, and there was only a clip file by Robin D.G. Kelly, um, which was an odd, uh, uh, entry in an encyclopedia, and then a small article, which I think I've reproduced in the book, newspaper article about her um, being um, incarcerated or released from incarceration, one of those two. And then that was about it. And I was amazed at that. So after that, I was on a sort of journey whenever I would go to London. And I went many times with my university as part of the um, their study abroad program in London. Each time I would go, I would do a little bit more digging. So this is what I mean about quilt work. So the archival work was not ever consistent in that way, but each time I would go to London, every couple of years, I would do a little bit more work. And I, basically, every time I would talk to people and ask about her, they would say, well, she's buried next to Karl Marx in Highgate. Um, so, and I didn't go the first time because I had taken my children with me to London and we were doing other things. And I was also teaching that London program and didn't leave a lot of time to do other things. Um, but um, eventually, the next time I went, I decided to go up to Highgate uh, to look for this um, famous bust of Karl Marx. And, I, and that I recount this in the book. I go and I'm on the tour in Highgate because, as you know, Highgate has these tours. And they take you to the old part of the cemetery. 15th century and so on. And eventually I asked the tour guide, but where's Karl Marx? Because I thought eventually we would get to the Marx bus. And he said, oh no, it's on the new side of Highgate. So I abandoned the tour and I make my way over there and then come across this massive Marx bus, 11 feet tall or whatever. And then of course, I wanted to see his bus, of course, but in terms of who he is, but I wanted to see that plaque on the ground next to Marx, which I identified as left of Marx. And that's where the title comes from. So it's not arguing that she's more radical than Marx or whatever, but she's positioned left of Marx as we stand and confront 
the Marx Buster Pagey. And then, of course, the more research I did on that, I discovered that this was deliberate, placing her there. So that in, in my view, and I see this in the text, it sort of opens up Marxism in a different way than the sort of fundamental dogmatic Marxism that people receive and are turned off by, but in fact looks then at how black women are positioned in uh, Marxism. So I began then doing that short piece as I, as I was saying at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I talk about her, and then gradually I would do different portions of poetry um, in different ways, and it all comes together in this large book uh, manuscript that, that became Left of Palmer. So it's not, I mean, I tell people doing um, scholarship, I'm not a historian, and I'm not claiming that I did history, but I did enough historical work to be able to um, write a really substantial piece on her, which engages her from many different angles. So it's not a biography in the classic sense where it begins with her early life and goes through, you know, the different stages, but it picks up different pieces of her life. So, for example, the deportation chapter deals with the, 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 um, the um, legal questions that have to do with how she was deported, what happened, and why. And actually enrolled and did a master's in international law um, just before doing it, in part because I think I wanted to be able to write this in a really credible way. So I actually got a master's in international law. Um, LLM um, in order to do this piece on her deportation. So I put in a lot into, into doing it. And of course did other things, but this part of it is, is definitely there. So if you walk with me through the introduction, you will see the steps. But as I said, it's also very spiritual because each time I was trying to find another piece, I'd be in London looking for something, looking for a person, and then I would run into somebody who worked with her like I did with Ricky Cambridge, who was her life assistant. And he was able to give me all that information and help me get to um, her, um, the source of material which Diane Langford kept um, in Hampstead, which then became an amazing leap forward. Because when I met Diane uh, Langford, she, um, I went to her house and she had two boxes open with all this material spilling out of it with all this Claudia June stuff that she was showing me that she kept in these two boxes which she had found by going through her partner, Manchander's um, uh, material after he passed. And um, Manchander was Claudia's lover and partner in London as well. And then Diane married him subsequently. Uh, their daughter is in London as well, Panther Manchander, Claudia Manchander, named after Claudia Jones. So Diane showed me these two boxes, and I was like so amazed that she didn't know what to do. What do I do with it? Because she said people kept coming, borrowing pieces, taking bits and pieces out of it to be used. The BBC did a special program um, where they took the boxes and then brought them back. Um, Marika Sherwood, who did a book called, uh, edited a book called Claudia Jones, Their Life in Exile, also did the same thing, took them on her bicycle and rode through town. So eventually Diane wanted to know what to do. And I suggested the Schomburg, back to the Schomburg, because the Schomburg is in Harlem and it's the major archive of black materials. And it, I thought it would be a good place for the Claudia Jones material for two reasons. Claudia spent most of her life in Harlem and she's actually from Harlem technically before being in London. Um, she grew up in Harlem after coming to, to the US and lived there all her life up until being deported. 
And then that she was deported and it was really for me significant that she come back to Harlem and her bringing back her material to the Schomburg was bringing her back to Harlem for me. And I was entrusted um, by Diane Langford to do that. And I, uh, you know, it was like a scary thing. I bought two huge suitcases and put all the material in it and then flew with it to um, the US. I was working at Northwestern University at the time. I had a, an assistant help me organize it into categories, scan it, save some of it, and the rest of all of it went to the Schomburg after that. So that's the pathway to doing the book. So each of the chapters captures one of those moments. I did the chapter on poetry when I was in Trinidad on a Fulbright, uh, and I was looking for Claudia Jones material then, like where she was from, where she was born, and so on, and I was going through the poems that she wrote while she was incarcerated. And I presented that at the University of the West Indies at the Center for Gender and Development. So that's where that comes from. Um, each of the pieces, definitely the introduction and the opening chapters, which talk about deporting the radical black subject are pieces that I wrote for this particular text. And then of course the FBI files, getting the FBI files in that massive thousand page document was another thing, and that's the last chapter, because I was looking at how the FBI constructed her and then how she constructed herself. And those two stories came together amazingly for me. And I still use it when I present the way the FBI would talk about her and they would have um, agents studying her and the agents would come back and say something, like all we found was that the subject works on black and Negro, Negro people and women. That's what the word they would use back then. And then, now people work on black women like there's no problem. But back then, anybody who worked in anything that looked like that was considered leftist. She, though, was in the Communist Party. So she got additional scrutiny because of that. But keep in mind Martin Luther King Jr., Robeson, uh, almost all the, the entertainers at that time were under inquiry or subjected to um, um, red baiting, um, and all kinds of ways in which the U.S. constructed this communist bogeyman. So the people who were actually communists, you can imagine, then were further um, uh, set upon by the U.S. government, and she would definitely be one of them. I'll stop there. That's now, quite a introduction, but it covers all of the pieces. I, w I wanted to ask you, um, mm -hmm. so there you mentioned, well, I think I'll introduce Claudia Jones' um, so she was uh, a radical black activist, journalist, campaigner, and her life story is really one that spans the globe, as you were mentioning, from Port of Spain, Trinidad, where she was born, to Harlem, and then eventually to London. Uh, she's really a global figure. But before writing about her, did you have any apprehensions about writing uh, about a black radical figure? Because... Even today, we see there's a lack of black radical voices. Do you have any apprehensions? Did not at all, and probably naively so. <laughs> As I said, I had done a book um, actually called Out of the Kumbla, Caribbean Women and Literature, um, which was probably an edited collection, one of the first collections that really dealt with the fact that there was a body of material called Caribbean women's writing, right? Now that's the whole field. Um, and in doing that, one of the things I said in the introduction, that basically I knew about the Caribbean writers who are women by that point, right? Whether it's Sylvia Winter, whether it's Paul Marshall, whether it's 
whoever, Jean Reese, the whole range, right? Beyond Brand and so on. But I did not know the intellectuals who would be that counterpart. I did not know a female CLR James then properly. So in my head, um, I was somewhat always imagining those people existed, but did not have the, the ability then to find them. So coming upon Claudia was that she was that person for me. And I still see her as the intellectual equivalent of CLR James and the hardcore Jamesian scholars um, and leftist activists sometimes, you know, would question that. But Claudia died at a very young age. Um, and imagine James lived till he was almost, what, 88, 90 something. So essentially, James had another 40 years after Claudia Jones died to, um, after, in terms of how much time was put in after she died, um, to really build and amass his intellectual career. And that's the point I want to make. So for me, she is an intellectual equivalent of, of CLR James. Um, she was also, he, they have similar kinds of issues, being deported and so on, living in the U.S., living in London. Um, and people often would ask me during presentations if they would ever have met. And it seems they never really met, but they were on one, they were on a panel together, according to Donald Hines, um, in support of Hurricane, a hurricane that had happened in the Caribbean. But they were never friends. And I talked to Laming, George Laming, the writer, about this when I interviewed him. And he said they actually moved in different circles, totally. Claudia was more the sort of activist grounds, um, grounding kind of person who worked with community, doing all this journalism and stuff. And James was much more the intellectual, scholarly kind of figure. So she was on the ground and he was doing other kinds of things. And I, I want to start right from the beginning. What were the early uh, experiences in Trinidad that led Claudia Jones to begin um, fighting against and uh, fighting against causes, uh, issues such as racism, sexism, and classism. Was there anything in her early childhood that sparked that activist life inside of her? I would say no. She came to the U.S. when she was eight years old, um, and she was part of that um, first big wave of Caribbean migration to the United States, which, in which people settled in Harlem and then later on in Brooklyn. Um, I, my point in, in um, bringing um, that movement up um, is that she identifies her family as sort of falling on sort of economic hard times, necessitating their movement to the United States. In that move to the United States, she leaves the Caribbean, um, and I went to her house in Belmont, so I, I, you know, the area where she lived and grew up, a little narrow lane called Casabon Lane. Um, and actually, we did a ceremony there um, a few years ago. Moving from the Caribbean, we're in the, as you know, in the Caribbean, there's a much more communal, familial sort of relationships and so on, to Harlem would have been a real major shock. So it was not so much the, what she was experiencing in the Caribbean that would have been given, given to her the ability to create a kind of political identity because she was eight. But really that migratory journey, one, and two, ending up in Harlem in a time where it's not like it is today where Harlem has become gentrified, but it was a place where it was, there were tenements, people were poor, they weren't living well, it was in the middle of the Great Depression and so on. So she comes into Harlem on, in two critical notes. 
right at that point in 1924 when she arrives there, it's the heyday of what is now called the Harlem Renaissance, where you have jazz, where you have music, you have some dancing, poetry, and so on, and people dressed and walked around Harlem very elegantly, even though they were poor. But they were also living very difficult lives. So essentially, race then, and, and we still see those twin representations of race on the one hand, negation and, and objection and so on, but on the other, the ability to take that same objection and negation and make it be beautiful and do what one can with it. So she would have witnessed that in Harlem. So she's seeing poverty. She was seeing her mother working like crazy, um, doing um, sewing in, in one of those startup factories where they had a lot of women doing uh, working in garment districts in heat and without a lot of support but also her father was working as a super in a building and they were living in the basement. It, as a super in the building, that's where the, base, the that's where the person, that is the person who manages the technical aspects of that building, you know, the plumbing and so on. And normally they would give them a base, an apartment in the basement. She indicates that the apartment that they lived in was very poor and there was an open sewer that ran right through it or in front of it or very close to it. So she was um, therefore very sickly as a child and became ill um, and, and actually was, was institutionalized at, at one point uh, for that. And this illness would affect her life consistently. Some people indicate rheumatic fever, which damages the heart. They also indicate tuberculosis, which also gives you lung issues. So you can see that she grows up then um, coming out of poverty in the Caribbean, but much more communal life to now urban, poor, um, New York environment, cold. Think about the weather. It's going to be cold. It's not going to be warm like the Caribbean, right? Um, where people give you fruits and mangoes and stuff if they, if they know that the children need food to New York where you don't get all those things. So she had to recreate herself. So for me, it's the journey, the migratory journey, and then experiencing, she identifies it very strongly Jim Crow racism in the United States at the same time an economic property. And then she says, growing up as a young woman, she would listen to the street corner speakers in Harlem. And anybody who has studied that period will tell you that at that point you would have this whole logic of people standing at street corners, just as they do in Hyde Park uh, in, in uh, London, but standing on street corners and talking about black experience, black conditions. Marcus Garvey did it. Another guy named Hubert Harrison had done it before Marcus Garvey. And according to all reports, sort of educated Marcus Garvey about how to do this. And in fact, the story is the first time Marcus Garvey did it, he almost fell off the, street, off the, off the soapbox and so on. So she would listen to these street corner speakers, but she found the ones who were from the Communist Party offered the best analysis of the conditions of black people. So she was more attuned to think their arguments were the ones that would be offering her the best explanations of her own family life, her own poverty, what happens to her, why she's ending up from in New York from the Caribbean, and all of the other aspects of her life as a young black girl growing up in Harlem at the time, who she said was not even able to go to her own graduation because she didn't have the dress to wear. So poverty and all of those questions, and how to explain that poverty leads her to the Communist Party very early. So she joins officially when she's like 21 years old. But normally when you join, you would have been exposed to them before they would have been cultivating you. So she was around them when she was like 18, straight out of high school. And then from there, 
develops, um, becomes a journalist um, in various Communist Party organs and then moves up the, the ladder to become the person that we know today. So it was a very organic um, development for her. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in her um, affiliation with the Communist Party because today in America and you could argue in the Western world, communism is still something that is, um, mm -hmm. people are apprehensive about it. There's a lot of reservations about it. When she was witnessing these communist speakers in Harlem and when she eventually joined, what was the attitude in America at the time to communism? It was really harsh because this is what was called the McCarthy um, period. And, uh, and actually during, so she would have had to be very determined as a person to really take this pathway, um, this analytical pathway. And I have really wonderful photographs of her with young um, communists in, um, at, a, at a forum in Vassar College in upstate New York where they were doing a kind of youth forum, youth organizing forum. Um, so it would have been difficult, yes. But it was at the same time a different from now. You still had an active Communist Party USA, and they were doing a lot of street organizing and so on. So they, it, although you have a, um, the disparaging of communism, at the same time they were the ones who were actively doing a certain kind of work. She mentions the Scottsboro Boys trial. The Scottsboro Boys were nine young boys in Alabama who were accused falsely of raping two white women in a train car, box car. You know, those trains that in those days, people would jump on the train in those carriages, not the seated part, but the place, part of the train that carried luggages and products and so on. Um, and they would go from city to city looking for work, right? She mentions um, this World Boys trial where these young men were almost lynched and were, some of them as young as 12 years old, were tried repeatedly um, for raping these women, and it was not true. And eventually, the woman, one of the women, um, admitted that it wasn't true at all. But the significant aspect about that, it was the Communist Party's legal arm that did all of the organizing work to help the Scottsboro Boys. Because at that time, keep in mind the NAACP, although it was the primary black organization, it often did not have the wherewithal to do all of the kind of work they needed to do that. So the Communist Party lawyers were the ones who did a lot of that work in the South to help free the Scottsboro Boys. And they were often organizing in New York City and talking about what they were doing and so on. So she credits the Scottsboro Boys trial and the Communist Party's work on that as really being formative. So the point in, in response to your question, the point is that yes, the Communist Party was still being demonized, but I think it's worse now because following the McCarthy period and the witch, communist witch hunts and so on, what was put in place in the United States was a punitive formation of United States citizenship based on not being a communist. This is really critical. This is why even with Bernie um, Sanders, who ran for office, even to say he was a democratic socialist, which many people don't see as a socialist in the classic sense, but more somebody who believes in a sharing of resources in a democratic uh, social system gets equated with Venezuela, gets equated with any attempt that people have to really, or Cuba, to think about creating a socialist society. Not at all true. So basically what was put in place following this McCarthy period in the 1930s and all of the communist red baiting and so on 
was an equivalent to U.S. citizenship and being anti-communist. And I say this with, with clarity for sure, because when you become a United States citizen, you have to fill out that citizenship form. And two of the last questions ask you precisely if you have ever been a member of the Communist Party, which is the exact question which was asked during the McCarthy period. So they, they, and most Americans, if they're naturalized citizens would know this, but if they were birth citizens, born citizens by birth, they don't know this. So they come alive and they're born into a culture which already is formed to be hating of socialism. So back then, socialism was still seen as, or communism was still seen as a legitimate political place that one could have an identity. But then you have the demonizing, then you have the witch hunts and so on. So she was part of a group of black leftists, black communists, who were quite confident about what they were doing until this happened. And they were identified as sort of the kind of radical chic group that dressed a certain way and looked a certain way and moved through the United States in a certain kind of way, which she was part of, which is ironic, isn't it? That I think it has gotten worse in this contemporary period. Now, how many uh, yeah. black women were active in radical politics at the time, because I can't imagine that it, they were full of uh, black radical women speaking out. Was she in a minority? She was not, and this is a really important point to make. There were women ahead of her that she, she was influenced by. Uh, and in my work, I talk about some of them in, in the chapter. Mark, um, the couple of those women um, identified very deliberately, and she, in many of her writings, also identified several of them. So it's really important to talk about the fact that she was part of a group. There was also another larger group called Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was organized around that same time and which had a number of other black women um, who were similarly involved um, in, in, in that process. For example, a woman named Louise Thompson Patterson was very much involved as well in that kind of organizing at that time and actually went to Russia with a group of people who were going to be um, actors in a, in a, in a movie in, in the Soviet Union and ended up not happening. So there were women ahead of her. She mentions a woman named Ward White, who was an organizer and did a lot of work in Buffalo, organizing garment workers and so on. And there were others after her. So basically, she was part of a group. Um, and it's really important to say that. There's another uh, woman named Vicki Garvin who followed her and then says that Claudia Jones was her major advisor. Vicki Garvin is somebody who one of my grad students is doing uh, work on. Um, she ends up in um, Ghana and then ends up in China, um, doing work in, in a number of cities in China. So there were women ahead of her, there were women along with her, and there were women after her who were active. Um, not huge groups, of course, but a cadre, let's say, of women who were doing that kind of organizational work. And I spent some time talking about those women in, um, in, in my work. There's another really nice essay that a young woman from Michigan State wrote called Running with the Reds, where she talked about precisely that. And I, that's, there's a reference in my work about that that somebody can look at later on. Now, in her journalism that she was doing, whilst uh, a member of the Communist Party and whilst uh, being active in Harlem, she talks about race, she talks about class, and she talks about gender. And in the book you talk uh, about her journalism is mentioning the triple oppression that black women face 
Now, why was it important for Claudia Jones to raise awareness of this triple oppression? You know, what I, I love about that um, and that question is that she always uh, foregrounded the identity of being workers, being women, and being black. Back then, they used the word Negroes. So women, Negroes, and, um, and workers. Um, because those were her identities. She carried those identities. And as I mentioned, when she listened to the street corner speakers talk about these questions, I am sure she was inquiring enough to want to know where does she fit into this whole framing of things. And with her own identity and then her mother's identity, she saw then that woman had a particular experience that was a little bit different than the men uh, and the white women who also um, suffered in different kinds of ways from patriarchal um, um, oppression. So for her, and this she precedes, um, and one of the things I make, uh, points I make in this work, and I assert really um, repeatedly, she precedes Angela Davis in that formation of women, race, and class. She is the person who really talks about that very early, and Angela Davis actually cites her on this. So it's not like Angela Davis hid the fact that this was coming from somewhere. It was coming from Claudia Jones. So now people talk about intersectionality and so on. I don't buy that fully as an argument for Claudia because she was looking at it in a different kind of way. She was looking at the layers, the ways in which these identities get layered and function, intersected or not, um, in different kinds of contexts. So for her, she uses a concept called super exploitation of the black woman and actually develops that to talk about the fact that black women are, are multiply exploited by different groups who are also exploited. And that's where she gets this logic of super exploitation from. So that all workers then in society are exploited because of their position, the way they have to sell their labor and so on. But then those same workers end up also being able, because of where black women are located, also exploit those black women. And this explains for her why black women give so much labor and receive so little remuneration. So that this is the super exploitation thesis that she's talking about. Keeping in mind that black women may work long hours in somebody else's home as a domestic worker, as a cleaner in a hotel or whatever. And then when they go home, they also have to work again in their home. They also have to take care of children. They also have to do household work. So that that length of, of, of labor that um, the black woman puts in into any given situation renders her super exploited by the dominant society because of all the layers which then exploit her labor. So there are very few black women who are able to live those kinds of lives where they're not victims of that super exploitation. And that's the point that she makes really well. And I liked it because it explains uh, so much in terms of how um, black women are positioned in society. The fact that black women still make, um, at one point it was 67 cents of every dollar white men made, and I believe now it's something like 72 cents uh, of every dollar that a white man makes. So that essentially you're not really occupying a, an equal level of, of access to the resources of any given society when you position as a black woman in that society. Now, many of her writings, which uh, I came across uh, being a history student, 
and uh, I studied some of her stuff, you find out that the authorities at the time, they were, you know, fascinated by her work, but not out of a fascination or interest in what she was saying, but out of um, a desire to stop her in that sense. And the FBI had meticulous files where they were collecting all of her writing. Could you talk to me about why the state was so anxious about Claudia Jones? I know that is, you know, I, I still, I still have to ponder that. But one of the conclusions I came uh, up with very early is what she said. She argues that if black women were to move politically, and this is in an essay she wrote called An Answer to the Neglect of the Problem of the Negro Woman, and also another piece called We Seek Full Equality, published what I believe in 1948. Um, in those essays, she really talks about the fact that if black women moved, the entire population moved. So for Claudia, she felt that in the Communist Party, their um, neglect of black women as full participants in those movements rendered then a whole population of women outside of um, being really fully used in terms of their capabilities, right? So for her, she, I think she saw, and then she spent in 1948 as well, quite a lot of time going around the country organizing women's groups as the secretary of the Women's Commission, working with a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was the president of the Women's Commission of the Communist Party USA. And their point was simply that one had to organize black women. And if you organize black women fully, then you have a, an amazing force that could really challenge a lot of the ways in which were gender, race, and class were being, um, gender, race, and class were being um, um, understood and then positioned in uh, dominant society. So I think it's that sort of capture, capturing that sort of um, alliance that the dominant society didn't really want to see coming together, that black women now would be empowered and able to move. And I, I keep arguing that when black women take a particular political position and advance it in a, in a certain kind of way, it really has that sort of impact on the larger society because women are benefiting from that, men are benefiting as well, and the larger society also moves further. So it's, I think those are the kinds of things that the state saw as um, causes for them to really keep her under surveillance. And they actually say that, that um, because she was in such leadership in the Communist Party, she was um, targeted for closer surveillance by the FBI and, and they pursued her relentlessly. I found even in, in getting the, the FBI files for her that they were still keeping tabs on her when she was in London. So some of the entries that after she left, you know, it's not that you leave U.S. borders and go to another country and then they forget about you. They kept following and knowing what she did. And in fact, the last, one of the last entries in the FBI files is that she had died, meaning that they don't have to really pursue her anymore. So just think about what that means. And when I saw her work on um, speaking out against the Korean War, she would speak against capitalism, she would speak against imperialism. And interestingly enough, whenever she was taken to court, they wouldn't even read her work which goes to show you the power of what she was saying, uh, that there was so, uh, the state was so fragile 
that they wouldn't even read her work. And I was wondering, um, could you talk to me about her movement to Britain and uh, the decisions that led to her deportation? Yeah, I like that point that she made about wouldn't read her work because when she goes to court, and I have a, um, that entire speech published in another book called Claudia Jones Beyond Containment, which was published by IABA in Banbury. And it's, um, she says in that speech, you dare not think that black women can think and speak and write. And she mentions the fact that they were not reading her work. So she was really aware of, of that um, way in which they did not study her. But my point was that in, in talking about her saying that, was that she was also claiming herself as an intellectual subject, that she don't think that we can read and think and write. She's claiming all of those thoughts, you know, being able to do analysis and think through, write, being able to express it, and also read and being able to, to, to do it. And she did all of those things well from all accounts. So she um, was tried and then sentenced to a year and a day in Allison, West Virginia, the federal penitentiary for women. We are also another person, famous person, uh, uh, was there after her, Billie Holiday, the, the singer. Um, and she, while she was in prison, which is really the, the craziness about that, there were also a number of other left communist women from Puerto Rico, Lolita Lebron, and a few others, also in prison at the same time. And she writes poems for one of them, Blanca Canales Torresola, who was the woman who had declared Puerto Rican independence um, in a city called Jayuya, and then was, of course, tried in the United States and incarcerated as well. So she was in a place, she was incarcerated in a time when a number of other women were also incarcerated, and she became friends with some of them, and they were all in prison at the same time, which is really strange to even contemplate. But she does only 10 months in prison because of her health and the prison food and the salt in the diet and so on. So she's released, but then she's deported directly after. She's released in October, and then she tries to have phase of her deportation. And there was talk about sending her back to Trinidad and Tobago, but they did not. They sent her to London because I gather they felt that they could keep better tabs on her as she went to London. Going back to Trinidad at that point, they felt just before independence um, happened in the Caribbean, they were not going to put a full fully trained communists in the middle of that because they felt it would like have that sort of impact on the society at large. So London was the place that she ended up being. And I thought that in a way, um, going to London for her then became kind of a, a choice of exile. Um, so I didn't read it so much as like a loss, but actually as a place to gain a whole different international um, reputation and, and um, community and, rep and, and, and um, a sphere of activism, I, I should say. So I am really, I didn't see it as a negative thing, as a loss. She went on a cruise ship, not a cruise ship, a, a line, an ocean liner, the equivalent of what would be a cruise ship, where they had to dress up and go down for dinner every day and so on. And then she arrives in London, but she then has to re get reclimatized, get a place to live, she was met by Caribbean people who helped her out. And then she um, is also hospitalized. So she would have several illnesses while she was in London um, and was under doctor's care. But from all accounts, she never stopped. She kept working and so on. 
But not too long after getting to London, she arrives in December 1955, she is able with Amy Ashwood Garvey to found the West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News later on. And from there, be able to launch a series of other um, projects, including the first carnival, and including also this group called CACO, Community of Afro-Asian uh, Organ and Caribbean Organizations, which did a number of things like marches against immigration bar and all kinds of other things. And then from there also be able to travel to the Soviet Union, to travel to China, to travel to Japan. So this is what I mean about leaving the United States and its own domestic dramas, she gets a much larger international audience, meets the Chairman Mao um, in, in China, and there's a whole other, a lot of other work. And then of course, dies that same year. One of my graduate students from China has been working on this China period, and I'm really happy about that for uh, in for his dissertation. That when he um, when he's finished with it, it should be a nice contribution to knowledge and scholarship. Mr. Jones, why aren't West Indians applying to come to this country in any numbers? Well, I would say that uh, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act has uh, acted as a deterrent against their coming. And in fact, that was the intention of the act, which uh, many of us considered a colour bar bill. Now, there was a good deal of ill feeling about this act when it was introduced. Has that ill feeling among West Indians died down? Uh, what is important to recognise now, it's not so much they're feeling directed against the act as such, because they're responsible, the act is law, they're fighting to repeal it, but the consequences of the act, uh, namely uh, the fact that the population at large, because of the whole propaganda against the West Indians, uh, regard them as second-class citizens, and they themselves, on the job, in virtually every sphere of life, find this difficulty. Uh, since the Immigration Act in terms of discrimination, uh, colourful housing, etc., etc. I wanted to talk about her activism in London because something that I found when looking at, you mentioned C.L.R. James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, and a lot of the black activists that came afterwards, London became a sort of hub for the black intelligentsia. They all kind of congregated at the same time. And during this time, you also had anti-colonial leaders from Africa, such as Joma Kenyatta, who uh, she was acquainted with. What was it about London that drew all of these activists together? Because it's quite a remarkable time for all of them to be at the same place at the same time. Well, you know, the Calypsonian Kitchener has a strong London as a place for me. So you have the Windrush generation of people migrating, right? And then uh, along with that, the students, student organizations with people like Stuart Hall coming later and a whole range of others. But all of the people who would become um, leaders of their home countries were students and members of an organization called WASU, West African Students uh, Organization or Union, WASU. Um, and they would be um, people that they were meeting and circulating and socializing with at that time. So that's very significant. But why London? It's, it's so um, clear um, that London, under, under colonialism, British colonialism in particular, you would have the sort of construction of England as the, the mother country and as the center of 
all knowledge, beauty, brilliance, and all of those things that you would have with colonialism, and therefore the desired location if you wanted to do anything um, uh, intellectually, creatively, educationally, and so on. Keep in mind that back then in the Caribbean and in Africa as well, often they did not have sufficient school even or university level education. There was a, 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 a something called the Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture in, in the Caribbean, um, which then became University of the West Indies. Um, but from if you wanted to become a writer, as James did and so on, and many of the other people like George Laming and, and others, the idea was that if you wanted to publish, if you wanted to be anybody, you would have to go to England. So colonialism, that's one of the byproducts of colonialism that Stuart Hall talks about. Because he says, you know, we are here because you were there. So basically they held up London and England as the place to be. And therefore, there's people who were thinking ahead, who were thinking creatively, who were smart enough to get into the schools that they should get into, went to those places. So you end up with a conglomeration then of intellectuals from different parts of the world, creative people from different parts of the world, all meeting at the same time. And then being able to talk about the nature of their condition in London, still running into racism, remember, and also what was happening back home. The same thing happens in Paris. This is how you end up with the negritude generation and people like France and on and others, because they were told in the French-speaking colonies that if you wanted to be a proper Frenchman or French woman, generally French man, you have to go to Paris. You have to speak French like the French, and you have to go to Paris. And then once you did all of those things, you mastered the language, the intellectual fields, and so on, then you'll be recognized as a fully French-made subject. Not so? And then they get there and discover there's still racism. So they get to Paris, they get to London, they discover there's still racism. So it's out of that that somebody like Franz Fanon would write Black Skin White Man, where he has in that section called the lived experience of blackness, that confrontation with the white gaze, which looks at you with contempt. And he says, you know, the, he sees the, 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 the man on the train sees who is himself in a way, sees the little child on the train who says, mom, look at Negro, look at nigger. And then he's looking at me and I'm afraid. And, and Fernand is like, he's a, she's afraid? How can, you know, where did this come from? How do I get positioned then as this black subject, abject, you know, negated position in this certain kind of way? The same thing is happening in London. It's just that Fanon is writing about this in French, right? So in London, these people come and they're like supposed to be part of the empire and welcome and so on. And then people don't want to give them housing and they don't want to really allow them to be fully um, members of the community and so on. So they're running into race, they're running into all kinds of housing discriminations and so on. So somebody like Claudia, who comes from the U.S., having seen the same thing, is able then, once she forms, uh, found the West Indian Gazette with Amy Ashwood Garvey's help, to now become the kind of person who offered aid, who offered assistance to people who were having those experiences that she recognized. So according to the people I interviewed, she was seen as the kind of godmother of the community, and people went to her for all kinds of reasons. And interestingly, in the West Indian Gazette, the first um, um, issues of it that I looked at, she begins to use it as a kind of space to really create Black community because Black businesses were able then to like start advertising, people making and selling products. 
were able to put them in those um, in in those portion advertising portions of the newspaper. But also she creates this carnival, and the carnival was again meant it had a beauty queen section. It had all kinds of other interesting components meant to showcase and highlight the beauty of black experience in London at the time. So all of those things then are taking place. And yes, she's meeting people and there are wonderful photographs of her with Martin Luther King Jr., with W.B. Du Bois, with Chetty Jagan, with all Jumo Kenyatta, with all of these people that she ends up running into and meeting because of the kind of work she's doing as a journalist as well. Now, fast forwarding to, uh, if you fast forward to today, and look at the way that Claudia Jones is remembered. Do you think people actually engage with the ideas uh, that she advocated for, or do you think people just engage with the fact that she was an activist? Because I, uh, the reason I ask this is because we see Vogue magazine uh, doing a profile. I heard, yeah. Claudia Jones, and often when we look at Black history in the UK, her name pops up. But yet her ideas, her anti-capitalist, her communist ideas, her anti-imperialism don't seem to come up. So what, what's happened to the way that we remember? Well, you know, this is, you know, I guess it's the duality of these experiences. And if you look, think of somebody like Angela Davis today, it's the same thing. She's in Vanity Fair dress, you know, and, and all of that, posing for photographs in a certain kind of way. So I think the black, you know, this is the whole question. And of course, you must have heard about this young white woman who has been impersonating being a black person. So blackness is both desired, but it's also abject, right? So you have those two things clashing all the time where the blackness is negation and also, you know, also um, desire at the same time. So I think um, assertion, negation assertion consistently working. So Claudia's position there, for sure. So, I mean, on the one hand, somebody like me, I'm happy whenever she gets representation because she was meant to be erased completely. So whenever somebody picks her up and shows her publicly in, in a certain kind of way, I'm happy about it. Um, and I know she is more known in terms of the carnival, but even so, there was even debate about, about giving her the status of, have, status of having the first carnival in London. So always there's this question then of, of having to reclaim her intellectual space. And especially to the kind of people like you, young scholars who know this, so that we are able to take it forward. So in my, in my thinking then, there's always a continuum in terms of representation, right? So on the one hand, you have the sort of intellectual scholarly understanding suffer, the activist versions as well, and then the popular ones. So that's, that spread then is what, is what I guess one desires and where she's located and we constantly have to find avenues like this one where we can fill in that information and make sure she's seen and heard. Now I've had many people and this was a lot of interesting debates with people in London saying, well, was she really communist? She was. Um, so that's one of the points that we have to keep stressing. She's buried left of Karl Marx. You know, so she, I mean, there's where, how, how much closer can you get than that, you know? So she was that for sure. But I think the, in, in the UK, and this may be coming from, you know, the various forms of, of trying to manage her in the UK, was to sort of play down her communism and make her much more kind of palatable social figure, right? But all of her experiences were generated then. What I will say, though, is that once she is in London, 
She's not received in the same way by the Communist Party Great Britain, CPGB, as she was by CPUSA. So because of that, she has a greater reason and an impetus to really work with her own community. So she becomes much more of a Pan-Africanist in London. But that doesn't mean that Pan-Africanism and socialism are always in conflict. According to George Padmore, he uses or, you know, Pan-Africanism or socialism. And in, in his view, Pan-Africanism in its practice should carry all of those aspects of socialism in terms of creating societies which are not based on sort of capitalist exploitation, but allow people to live their best and fullest lives, which is how he would have defined it, sharing resources and so on. Claudia never gives up on those positions. So she moves in the U.S., and this is the point where she dies, sadly, right? When she moves from the U.S., she becomes much more open to working directly and mainly with Black community, creating those organizations like CACO, which do that, going to Japan and being a speaker against nuclear proliferation, going to China and meeting Chairman Mao, interviewing um, you know, a number of women in China and so on, and traveling around and really understanding the place and, and what they try to do. So I think right at the point that she dies, She's shifting away from the sort of hardcore CPUSA Soviet framing of an identity and looking at it more in terms of the international um, issues that were coming out of the so-called third world or the global south and positioning herself there. And this is when she, we lose her. So just imagine, you know, the continuance that would have happened, you know, had we been able to have a few more years of her um, to contribute to our thinking. And when you reflect on Claudia Jones's history and her activism, where do you place her in the dichotomy of grassroots campaigner and uh, intellectual? Because she kind of fit into both. Because with her journalism, she was really speaking to those, the grassroots, those, um, the everyday black man and woman. But yet she also held a spot within this mm -hmm. academic field, with the circles that she was going in. So where, mm -hmm. where do you place her? I see her right there. And in fact, I was at, um, on a panel at Harvard in February before everything closed down. And one of the questions they asked people like me was like, how do you, you know, how do you see yourself in terms of activism? And one of the things I said is that there is already a black radical intellectual tradition into which many of our people who perceived us belong. And I placed Claudia squarely as one of the women in that black radical intellectual tradition, which combines activism and intellectual work in different degrees. Now, if you are a professor at a university doing intellectual work, your activism may come out differently. You may not be on the streets doing all the grassroots work, grassroots work, as you indicate, that some others would be doing, but you're similarly doing intellectual work that is identified as, according to Du Bois, challenging the ways in which we are positioned in the wake of what is called modernity. So, so we position negatively in terms of how the black body, the black subject is identified following enslavement, following colonialism and so on, where we came into the new world then with this, with this objection as identified by enslavement. And then we still positioned like that because of colonialism, because of continuing global racism and so on. So I am one of those people, I don't buy this logic that people only run into racism when they reach, when they reach the UK or come to America. 
because these global racist paradigms are operating in those places all the time. Some people are not aware of them and some people are, right? So the knowledge that we acquire from people like her help us to really unpack and understand how we are located in society and how we challenge these intellectually on the ground of the grassroots planning, organizing, and so on. So there is a category then of the black radical intellectuals, which many of us, and I see myself squarely as belonging to that. And in that black radical intellectual tradition, there's a Caribbean version. There's a Caribbean intellectual tradition as well that is activist, that has people like her, that has Claudia Jones, that has C.L.R. James, that has Sylvia Winter, that has a range of other subjects as well. So I belong to that, and I'm really proudly part of that tradition and see my, any contribution that I make to advancing that as part of that belonging to some sort of larger black radical intellectual tradition, which combines in different ways, practices in different ways, articulates in different ways, but through it all continues that process of unpacking how we are positioned in the wake of modernity and this so-called framing of our worlds in, in the contemporary period, still operating with global racist paradigms. Now, as someone who works within uh, a university, I wanted to talk to you about decolonizing the curriculum, because throughout my time uh, as a history student, very rarely did I ever, well, I, I wasn't taught by any non-white lecturers. I didn't uh, come across any black literature, except when I had to take my own initiative and uh, go and find uh, wow. these sources. And I wanted to know, from your perspective, how do universities decolonize um, completely and how can they use their studies to eradicate racism and also create a more inclusive society? I know. It's such a big deal. And I'm really happy um, to say that my university, um, and I've, I've talked about this consistently over the years in, because my field is literature, and I talked about Ngugi Rapiongo decolonizing the mind and his earlier work um, on the abolition of the English department and so on. So essentially my university uh, following the killing of George Floyd and the student um, protests and uprisings all around the world, the taking down of statues and so on, the, the recognition that global racism permeates so many societies, that police, police brutality is evident in many different locations and so on. Um, Coming out of that sense of helplessness, my colleague Mukoma and I came up with a proposal to have our department, the English department, change its name from Department of English to Department of Literature and English. And it actually passed. We put it forward to um, the first meeting um, of the semester um, last week, Wednesday, and it actually passed. And now it should go through the ranks of the levels of the university. So the question is, um, I would say one department at a time, because all of those departments carry the marks of, of, of um, colonial structuring in terms of faculty or the absence thereof, the subject matter that they teach, the courses they offer, and so on. So at every level, the institutions are already locked into institutional racism. And I was using, in my own presentation, a formation from Sylvia Winter, where she argues in a piece called No Humans Involved, an open letter to her colleagues at Stanford, that it is the university that reproduces racism and therefore 
reproduces it in terms of its teaching of students, maintains it, and those students go out into the world, again, reproducing racism in a very particular way. So for winter, it's we, the academicians, who she calls the grammarians of this epistemological order, who maintain the racial structures in our very teaching. And actually, Amy Césaire, the famous um, Martinican poet and activist, had made the same point when he said that within philosophy, you already have the structures of racial oppression, which then are acted out in the larger context in terms of how the so-called Negro is defined, um, in terms of how black people are subjected to be defined as not on the equivalence um, of white of the white subject. So basically, we in the university have to always be self-questioning. And anytime we have an opportunity to do that kind of transformative work like we do now, to really take it forward. And hopefully, we'll have intellectuals who would be able to help um, advance some of those when they can. And students have a role. They have a role to push against those boundaries as well and, and challenge those institutions like my institution or the students have something called Do Better Cornell. <laughs> so you can have your institutions do the same thing. Do better Oxford, do better Cambridge, do better whatever. Um, I know there were movements created like why is my curriculum so white and so on. I think you all have to continue those. You don't have to give up. Different waves of students need to take it further and each group needs to take it further. And let's keep in mind, this is a long process. Look at how long, I mean, I've been talking about decolonizing the English department. And then finally, we're able to do it. And I like this point that CLR James makes, that there are conjunctural moments, that there are certain times in history when things come together, which therefore create the conditions for that qualitative leap that allows other things to happen. So we are in a conjunctural moment right now, where people are more aware of global racism, and therefore more apt to be able to do something that transforms it a bit. So if you can transform it enough for the other, it's not going to be revolutionary change, although this is what people like Sukli Kamaita wanted, but I don't see it. So essentially what one has to do is to find a way to transform these institutions bit by bit so that they become more habitable places for us and our future. Because you don't want your children have to go through the same thing or your sisters and brothers and others coming after your neighbors coming after you. So one step at a time, one department at a time. If you're in anthropology, then you need to challenge them. Um, if you're in history, then they need to go forward and push it a little further. And this is what we are doing. Fortunately, our universities, after the George Floyd and so on, put out statements that said they have to create more just and equitable institutions. So we're taking that seriously. And finally, I wanted to ask you, in your assessment, with all the research you've done on Claudia Jones, what to you is her lasting legacy? Oh my God. Her lasting legacy is that she was able to live out and be such an amazing contributor to the thought that we carry today. The whole question of being a black woman in society. And, and just as Fanon talked about the lived experience of blackness, you have Claudia Jones talking about the lived experience of being a black woman in society. And therefore, um, Fanon has a quote um, at the end um, where he says, oh, my body, make of me a man who questions. I see Claudia Jones as that person saying, oh, my body, make of me a black woman who questions. So this to me is what she did. And this allows her then to enter history in the way that she 
has with such an amazing elegance as well, beauty and elegance and calm, but ongoing activism and contribution to making us live in a society that is, you know, more reflective of what it should be in, in, uh, in any kind of estimation of what kind of life one should live. Carol Boyce-Davies, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Brian. Welcome back. And that was an interview, extensive interview with uh, Carol Boyce Davies of Cornell University discussing uh, the lifetimes and contributions of uh, African Caribbean revolutionary uh, leftist, communist, pan-Africanist Claudia Jones. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment on uh, Lorraine Hansberry.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of Marsha Hunt. I'm singing this track entitled Black Flower. Our final segment uh, deals uh, with the lifetimes and contributions of Lorraine Hansberry, uh, the African-American woman, playwright, and public intellectual. Uh, This is an interview done with Studs Turtle, uh, the radio broadcaster, uh, from 1959, this interview was conducted in Chicago. Let's listen in. We're seated in the apartment of uh, Mrs. Hansberry. I believe this is the apartment of the mother or the sister of Lorraine Hansberry, whom we can rightfully describe as a distinguished young American playwright. This may sound like a strange thing to say. An artist has written one play, and we call her a distinguished American playwright. But it isn't one man's opinion the winner of the Drama Critics Circle Award, which in itself may be unprecedented. I'm not sure. I'll ask Miss Hansbury about this. Lorraine Hansbury, originally of Chicago. Very much so. Back home for a week or so, visiting your family. Mm-hmm. Until Sunday. If we could sort of make this a rambling, a rambling kind of conversation and, and dig as much as we can out of you, your thoughts, how you came to write it, and your feelings about the play and, and theater generally. This afternoon, you, you gave... what. Everybody that I thought was an inspiring, not a speech, an inspiring piece of conversation at Roosevelt University about drama generally. And if we can touch on that as we go along, why fine. I sc- uh, Lorraine, mm-hmm. may, may I? Sure. Okay. I'm a question o- <laughs> A question is often, I'm sure, has asked you many times. You may be tired of it. Someone comes up to you and says, this is not really a Negro play, Raisin in the Sun. I'm sure you've been told this many... What's your reaction? They say, this is a play about anybody. Now, what do you say? That's an excellent question. Uh, Because invariably, this has been the point of reference. People are trying... I know what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say, and mistakenly, as a matter of fact, which I'll speak about, what they're trying to say is that this is not what they consider the traditional treatment of the Negro in the theater. They're trying to say that it isn't a propaganda play that it isn't a protest no play, play, and that it isn't something that hits you over the head and the other remarks, which have become clichés themselves mm-hmm. as a matter of fact and discussing this kind of material. So what they're trying to say is something very good. Uh, they're trying to say that they believe that uh, the characters in our play transcend category. However, it's an unfortunate way to try and do it because I believe that one of the most sound ideas in dramatic writing is that in order to create the universal you must pay very great attention to the specific. In other words, I've told people that not only is this a Negro family, specifically and definitely culturally, but it's not even a New York family (laughs) or a Southern Negro family. It is specifically Southside Chicago. Uh, That kind of care, that kind of attention to the detail of reference and so forth. In other words, I think people will, to the extent they accept them and believe them as who they're supposed to be, to that extent they can become everybody. So I was definitely a Negro play before it's anything else. The universality itself is italicized when you say something specific about a specific human being or a group of human beings, as you did here. Universality, I think, emerges from truthful identity of what is 
something you said as you were uh, breaking down this cliche, this well-meant, this mm. well-meant uh, yeah. point that uh, these are well-rounded people. They meant could be anybody. But you say, when people who say that, forget that you wrote this play. <laughs> You wrote this play for a certain reason, yes. too. You wrote, not a certain reason, Charles, a certain need to write this play. How did you come about? Uh, this is a rather Before big... I say that, though, sure. I just want to say the other part that I said I would refer to, which sure. is that uh, I don't know what everybody's talking about when they talk about drama in American theater that has been hitting them over the head on the Negro question. They keep alluding to some mysterious mm. wh- a body of material which allegedly did this. I, for one, can't recall that we have had anything approaching uh, a great number of protest plays or so-called social plays about Negroes. And as a matter of fact, the last play on Broadway that was a Negro play dealt with a boy coming into adolescence. In other words, it seems to me that... Take a step. Yes. You know, where the the Negro question as such was not uh, a paramount issue at all. Uh, it seems to me there's a preoccupation and a sense of guilt or something that some that some elements are so afraid of what they feel that they're already anticipating something that hasn't been true. This is an interesting comment <laughs> here. Uh, we need a few protest it. plays, as a matter of fact. In fact, the last <laughs> protest play as such, with a capital P, I mean, was something called Stevedore, which was years and mm. years ago, as I remember. The 30s. One of the very few, really. Now, take a giant 30s. step... Uh, now, I suppose somebody might have said of Louis Peterson's play, oh, this could be, or oh, could they have said it about that, as they did of your play? And also, the one play of which this description is true, as a matter of fact, was Deeper the Roots, which happens to have been a quite a good play. It wasn't, it wasn't a sloppy play. I would treat all dramatic material differently myself, but that's irrelevant. In terms of ordinary Broadway fare, it was as good as any other play. What they're sensitive about is, is the material that's used in it, obviously. I'm thinking of Walter Lee Younger. Hmm. You call him the the focal character, the protagonist of the play, Walter Lee Younger. And for those, the great many listeners who were not fortunate to hear you this afternoon at Roosevelt, you spoke of Walter Lee Younger as an affirmative hero. And in contrast to many of the heroes of theater, such as we see today, of very excellent plays. Would you mind uh, explaining that a bit? Well... As I went on at length about it this afternoon, because uh, you know I wanted to develop it in terms of what I think are some general patterns in contemporary drama, but specifically in terms of the play itself, Walter is affirmative because he refuses to give up. There are moments when he doubts, you know, himself, and uh, even retreats and goes back into something that. Obviously, to the extent that the point of view of the artist, the, the author, is clear in this play that I don't agree with and things that he decides to do. But in the end... You mean investing the dough, you mean? Mm, well, beyond that point when he says not only was he cheated, but the solution is to go out and cheat everybody else. Oh, yeah, that's because right this, that. this is the way life is. What he means, of course, is that this is the way the life around him is. Uh, but I suppose thematically what... What he represents is my own feeling that sooner or later we are going to have to make principled decisions in America about a lot of things. And uh, any number of these decisions are going to seem contrary to things that we think we want. 
In other words, we've set up some very materialistic and uh, overtly uh, uh, what we think solid values. Uh, yes, overtly um, limited concepts of how the world should go. Sooner or later, I think we're going to have to decide on them. In other words, I think it's just as conceivable to uh, create a character today who decides maybe that uh, his whole life is wrong so that he ought to go do something else altogether and really make a, completely, a complete reversal of things that we think are very acceptable. This, to me, is a certain kind of affirmation isn't just rebellion, because rebe rebellion rarely knows what you know what it wants to do when it gets through rebelling. Even this affirmation against it's a what little revolutionary. You know, what may be considered accepted values, generally conventional values, let's say within a framework. Yes. Yes. Uh, Walter Lee does. Yes. Uh, uh, you say nothing is solved, nothing completely solved in the play as they move to a new neighborhood. Right. You know, it would be just as well, though, to say that um, I chose Willie Loman. I chose Willie Loman because I was making a point. But there was another affirmative character to emerge in the last 80 years who, interestingly enough, also chose death and who was affirmative rather than negative. And this was John Proctor in The Crucible. In The Crucible. Uh, in other words, the point becomes what did he choose death for? He chose death for life. <laughs> In this case, you know, this is the uh, story that involves a man who stands up against the Salem witch hunts in the 17th century. This is choosing death for a reason that's going to substantiate life. For life make it as bigger. a man rather than as a cipher. Exactly. John uh, Proctor. I hadn't thought about the... This is remarkable. Because Walter Lee Younger may have physical trouble as he leaves, you see. Uh, as John he Proctor probably did, will. <laughs> but Walter Lee Younger, if he's moving anywhere <laughs> in Chicago, <laughs> found himself as a man, as John, as John Proctor. I hadn't thought about this. I think of now Mrs. Younger, that is Mrs. Big Walter Younger, Walter Lee's mother. Uh, here is a remarkably strong person. Question I'm going to ask. He's probably asked many times. In many cultures, the mother, the woman, is very strong. Mm -hmm. Now ta ta uh, Steinbeck used it with Mrs. Jode yes. in Grapes of Wrath. Yes, someone now, drew in, a beautiful analogy. In Negro families, uh, through the years, the mother has always been a sort of pillar of strength, hasn't she? Yes, yes. Those of us who are, to any degree, students of Negro history think this has something to do with the slave society, of course, where she was allowed to a certain degree of, uh, not ascendancy, but of at least control of her family, whereas the male was relegated to absolutely nothing, nothing at all. And this has probably been sustained by the sharecropper system in the South and on up into even urban Negro life in the North. At least that's the theory. I think it's a mistake to get it confused with Freudian concepts of uh, matriarchal dominance and Philip Wiley's momism and all that business. It, it's not the same thing. Uh, not that there aren't negative things about it, not that tyranny sometimes doesn't emerge, you know, uh, as a part of it. But basically, it's, uh, it's 
a great thing. Uh, these women have become the backbone of our people in a very necessary way. Underground this, railway leaders. Yes, yes. Uh, the Irish reflect this, I think. There's a, there's a relationship between uh, Mother Younger in this play and Juno, which is very strong and obvious. And I think there's always a relationship, perhaps I don't know that much about Irish history, but there was probably a necessity. Why, among oppressed peoples, the mother will assume a certain kind of uh, role. In a way, she's almost, that's not the wrong word I'm using, it's almost a front. Not really a front, but uh, the guy, you know, immediately the guy of any... Uh, people under pressure is the prime target to begin with, maybe. I don't know. Possibly. This, this, this has an element. Obviously, uh, people who are sophisticated enough to know it say that, obviously, the, the most oppressed group of any oppressed group will be its women, you know, obviously, since women, period, are oppressed in society. And if you've got an oppressed group, they're twice oppressed. Mm -hmm. So I should imagine that um, they react accordingly as oppression makes people more militant and so forth and so on, then twice militant because they're twice oppressed, so that there's a, an assumption of leadership historically. I want, I want to come back to Mrs. Younger, but you mentioned Juno, so there's something you said in the current issue of New Yorker, your feelings about O'Casey. <laughs> yes. O'Casey, the playwright. You were talking yes. about... I love Sean O'Casey. What is it about O'Casey? Of course, your play has a certain life to it now. What are you feeling about O'Casey? Well, O'Casey is divided, first of all. When I speak of the O'Casey that I love, I mean things like Shadow of a Gunman and Juno, and um, I've never read The Plow and the Stars, I want to. But this area, and Red Roses for me, uh, this, to me, is uh, the playwright of the 20th century accepting and using the most obvious instruments of Shakespeare which is the human personality in its totality. Uh, I've always thought this is profoundly significant for Negro writers and uh, to use, not to copy. There's no reason to copy. The material here is too rich to copy anybody. But as a model, as a point of departure, O'Casey never fools you about the Irish, you see. You go, you, the Irish drunkard, the Irish braggart, the Irish... Uh, uh, Liar. Liar, who's always talking about how he's going to fight the revolution and when the English really show up, you know, he mm -hmm. runs and gets under the bed and the young girl goes out oh. to uh, fight with the, with the Tommies, you see, and so forth and so on. And the genuine heroism which must naturally emerge when you tell the truth about people. This, this to me, is the height of uh, artistic perception and is the most... Um, rewarding kind of thing that can happen in drama because when you when you believe people so completely you know that uh, they're so recognizable because everybody has their drunkards and their braggarts and their cowards then you also believe them in their moments of heroic Heroism assertion too. you know you don't doubt them you don't feel like well this is soap opera Now, Walter Lee, uh, uh, what, uh, what you said can be directly applied to your own work, really, because you showed Walter Lee's frailties throughout. You know. 
And when he did emerge in that heroic moment, we believed. You know. well, that was the hope. That was the intent. Also, the the other thing about O'Casey is that, in other words, what I believe in, for instance, if we're really going to talk technical dramaturgy, is what I do not believe in is naturalism. I think naturalism should die away and acquire death. I do believe in realism. By naturalism, you mean the tape-recorded kind of... Precisely. That this is not our... You say Chayefsky, in a way. Not because... The, the only reason I say this is because I'm talking about yeah. it negatively at the yeah. moment, and there are things about Chayefsky which I think have been very important for American television drama. Uh, but naturalism is its own limitation, you know. In other words, if you just repeat what is, you can go and show a murder and say this is the whole of life, because after all, there it is. You've made a photographic reproduction of it. Go deny it. It's true. It's real. Realism demands the imposition of a point of view, and the point of view of O'Casey is always the wonder of the nobility of people. And he literally imposes it on us. Uh, it's the additional dimension always of the humanity of people. And he literally imposes it on us. And he uses something which I can't imitate because I'm not equipped to. He uses... Uh, poetic dialogue which moves it out of the realm of what I'm av able to write into the sphere of great art I wish I could I think as a matter of fact there are parallels between Negro speech even urban Negro speech in America and and um, urban Irish speech which should make it very easy but there it is doesn't a happen <laughs> there is a great deal of poetry I felt I'm not, I'm not buttering you now well, I'm there glad is a great deal it. of poetry in, in Raisin in the Sun because to me, you can, again, not naturalism, you say, but not realism as such, but larger than life. Isn't that what you meant to say? Theater should be larger than life? Always. Always. There used to be a ballet in this play. <laughs> there was a ballet? There used to be a ballet. I had a letter from Max Lerner. I don't know if that means anything. The Chicago listeners. Yes, it does. I think there are many Max <laughs> readers here. And he said to me that... Oh, excuse me. He, uh, rather, he he wrote a column on the, on the play, you know, and he, in York the column Post. in the New York Post, and he said uh, it's a very good column, and uh, he said that uh, he liked the play very much. However, it was a little too literal for his taste. And those places where Miss Hansberry almost let go her imagination, she suddenly remembered that she was a nice, proper girl, and then got back to this very literal play. You see, uh, he was very much enamored of the African scene, for instance. You know, Walter gets up, which so forth. Uh, Walter is does the warrior, that one where he... Where he yes, and where he off. speaks in mm -hmm. open poet, mm -hmm. poetic uh, declarations about the coming time when we're going to march and so forth and so on, which is a half of the man which only realism could impose on the scene, not naturalism, because naturalism would never happen. Nobody would believe it. And I wrote him a note, and I said, You're, that was a very interesting remark, because I was the one who was tamed, you know. I, I think that... Uh, Imagination has no bounds in a realism that you can do anything, which is permissible in terms of the truth of the characters, and that's all. That's all that you have to care about. And that I told him that there had once been a ballet, a modern ballet in this play. Within it, in, as you, when you originally wrote that's this. That's right. So when, the, when the motifs of the characters were to be done in modern dance, it didn't work. <laughs> it may not have worked at that time, but work. the fact is no. that, that you had a ballet in mind indicates that there was a poetic feeling, you see. Right. It, it indicates 
some of the directions that I feel I would it's go. It's something you said a moment ago, and uh, I know Bill Leonard of, of the trip interviewed you briefly this afternoon. I mean, you, uh, the play, some will ask you, is this autobiographical? Yes, Yet they your, keep asking your background is not... Your background culturally may be the place, to some extent background, but it is not specifically. No, it isn't. I've tried to explain this to people. I've come from an extremely comfortable background, materially speaking, and uh, yet uh, I've also tried to explain we live in a ghetto, you know, which automatically means intimacy with all classes and all kinds of experiences. It's not any more difficult for me to know the people that I wrote about than it is for me to know members of my family because there is that kind of intimacy. This is one of the things that... Uh, the American experience is meant to Negroes. We are one people. I also tried to tell the people at the New Yorker, you know, in that interview that you read, that uh, I had a reason for choosing this particular class. I guess at this moment the Negro middle class may be from 5 to 6 to 7% of our people, the, you know, the comfortable middle class. And I believe that uh, they are atypical of the more... Uh, representative experience of Negroes in this country. Therefore, I have to believe that whatever we ultimately achieve, however we ultimately transform our lives, will come from the kind of people that I chose to portray. That therefore, they are more pertinent, more relevant, more significant, and most important, most decisive in our political history and uh, our political future. This is, here again, is the, is the mark of a playwright, if I may interject this. Outside your own, it, within your experience and yet outside it in the material sense. Yes. Because you sensed here was the more dramatic. Yes. Uh, figure. The little girl, if I may, uh, I'm wondering a personal thing, uh, the very charming and alive little sister. Is this slightly autobiographical? Oh, she's stages? very autobiographical. My sister, my <laughs> brother would tell you that. <laughs> this... Uh, as a matter of fact, it's an expression of conceit, really, because the truth of the matter is that uh, I enjoyed making fun of this girl, who is myself, eight years ago, you know. I enjoyed making fun of her because I have that kind of confidence about what she represents. I'm not worried about her, you know. Uh, she's precocious. She's over-outspoken. She's everything, you know, which uh, tends to be comic and... Uh, you know, people sigh with her and they have one at home like that, you know, and they, they enjoy her for this reason. She's very much alive. Yes, but I also uh, feel that she doesn't have a word in the play that I don't agree with still today. I would say it differently today. That's it. She doesn't have a word in the play. You don't. You would say it differently in a more mature way today. I hope it's more mature. But basically, the kid is right. Oh, I think so, yes. She's, uh, she's suspect of many things that Walter Lee accepts, she'd say. He has the energy and he has the will at the moment to, to make the decisive decisions. That's why I say that he's a pivotal character. As a matter of fact, if I can just digress, people have I've been interested in some of the criticisms of the play. We had one letter in the New York Times from, or you could tell by the <clears throat> tone and quality of the letter from a very sophisticated young man sitting somewhere, who said that he regarded the soap opera, you know, which amused me. And... Uh, because if anyone wanted to discuss this play in terms of soap opera, they'd have a great deal of trouble because soap opera implies melodrama, and melodrama has a classical definition. If you can prove that there are no 
motivated crises in this play, I would be astonished. So I don't think it qualifies as a melodrama. I think it's legitimate drama. Um, or a happy ending. If he thinks that's a happy ending, I invite him to come. Well, he's welcome. <laughs> yeah. Go live in one of those communities where these people apart. are going. However, so that that character of uh, criticism I am inclined to be contemptuous of because it's based on a snobbery that doesn't understand things, uh, that doesn't understand the profundity of things that are deliberately simple. Lorraine, you, you hit a very tender point with me. I when it was on this very uh, on the letter written by that young man. I am <laughs> very well acquainted. With what him. I did want to say though was that I'm not hostile to legitimate criticism, and one of the things that's been very interesting to me is that no one has picked out something that I think is a very genuine criticism of the play. That is, that it lacks a central character in true classical sense. There is no central character in this play. You there is a pivotal character. In Walter Lee. Yes. But he isn't said, because some will say, some will tell you Mrs. Young. That's right. That people come out and they think it's the mother, they think it's the son, and some people are so enamored of the daughter, they're not sure that she isn't really more relevant in some way or somehow. Well, this is, a, this is to me, a weakness of the play. Is this really a weakness? I mean, uh, must there, because it, must it be about a single? You see, this is a play in a sense of, may, maybe you're right, a play about, I'm thinking of Awake and Sing for the moment, you see. Who was the central character in what was a very excellent play of a Jewish lower middle class family? Mm -hmm. There was no central uh, any more than in yours, really, was there? Well, uh, obviously, when you start breaking rules, yeah. you may be doing it for a yeah. good reason. You may yeah. find something yeah. else. And yeah, since true. people are able to hold on to the play and become involved yeah. in a way that the central character is supposed to guarantee, then maybe you don't really need it. Yeah. I wonder. But for me, all I'm saying is yeah. that, uh, in my view of drama, the great plays have always had a central character with whom we rise or fall, no matter what, from the Greeks yeah. through Shakespeare, Willie uh, or Hamlet, through or Ibsen, so. Mm. The, Nora. Afri the African suitor, you know, I'll come to something now, hmm. always intrigued me very much. Remember, my I favorite asked, character. Uh, <laughs> he's a remarkable figure. Who is he, what is his uh, meaning in this particular hmm. play in contrast to the others? Hmm. He represents two things. He represents, first of all, the true intellectual. This is a young man who is so absolutely confident in his understanding his perception about the world, that he has no need for any of the uh, facade of pseudo-intellectuality, for any of the pretenses and the, you know, the nonsense, which is why he can laugh at her. She's just getting to a point of understanding where he's been already. He's, you know, he can already kid about all the features of intense nationalism because he's been there, and he understands beyond that point. He's already concerned about the human race on a new level. He's a true, genuine intellectual. He's a man who's involved in concepts so that he doesn't have time or interest except for amusement and useless passion and useless uh, promenading of ideas. That's partially what he represents. That's one part of it. The other thing that he represents is much more overt. I was aware that on the Broadway stage they have never seen an African who didn't have his shoes hanging around his neck, you know, and a bone through his nose or his ears or something. The stereotype. And I thought that even just theatrically speaking, this would most certainly be refreshing, you know. And uh, again, it, it required no departure from truth because the only Africans that I have known, of course, have been African students in the United States 
who, this boy is a composite of many of them, as a matter of fact, no one guy. And what they have represented to me in life is what this fellow represents in the play, excuse me, and that is the emergence of an articulate and deeply conscious uh, colonial intelligentsia <laughs> in the world. Uh, I'm very much concerned and caught up in the movements of the African peoples toward uh, colonial liberation, liberation out of colonialism. And he represents that to me. He also uh, signifies a um, you know, a hangover of something that began in the 30s when Negro intellectuals first discovered the African past and became very uh, aware of it. Garveyism and everything else. Yes, that was part of it in a different sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I meant particularly uh, in poetry and uh, the creative well, arts. Well, the culture that was there. Yes, Hughes did this and uh, Africa this and Africa that. I still feel this way. I want to reclaim it. The great culture. Not physically, I don't mean. I want to but move to it. I think it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, the, so many anthropologists agree. I mean, the great culture that is there, that has been, that was uh, stolen, too. Oh, sure, sure. And which uh, may very well uh, make very decisive contributions to the development of the world in the next few years. There's a point. I suspect it's going to. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Asagai is an angry young man who can be very quiet in his anger. This is the young student. The African student. You say he is an angry young man. Yes, who can There's be a, quiet yeah, in his anger. Quiet. There's a point I want to raise. Now, you may get a kick out of this and disagree. Uh, when Sidney Poitier and Leon Bibb, his friend, the singer, mm -hmm. you know, were interviewed, mm -hmm. they spoke of the young student. He he's an idealist. He would have a <coughs> rough time. Now, see if you agree with this. There's a very interesting point. <laughs> they say Nkrumah... And Kenyatta are very practical men, is the point they were making. And he, your friend, would uh, have a rough time uh, in the power battle as such. He might be sort With of hamburger, squeezed between two forces. This was the inference. I hope I haven't misinterpreted them. Right, I bring that. They were I saying that... Uh, uh, the that Asagai, the African yeah. student in the play, as opposed to men like Kenyatta and Nkrumah, that's is right. an idealist. Yeah, that's to the, right. Well, that's they, 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 admire, <laughs> they admire the two men they were talking about. They were saying that he may be just taken. Is the, he, he might be victimized by in a, in a rough-and-tumble battle, being the idealist he is, you see. Except that this man has an ideological preparation for that. In fact, in one sense, he gives the statement of the play. You know, I don't know how many people get it, but he, he does. He says, she says to him, you're always talking about independence and freedom in Africa, but what about the time when that happens and then you'll have crooks and petty thieves who come into the, to power and they'll do the same things, only now they'll be black, you know. So what's the difference? And he says to her that this is virtually irrelevant in terms of history, that uh, when that time comes, there will be Nigerians to step out of the shadows and kill the tyrants, just as now they must do away with the British. Uh, and that history always solves its own questions, but you get to first things first. In other words, this man has no illusions at all. This is a wonderful answer. This he just believes in the order that things must take. He knows that first, before you can start talking about uh, what's wrong with uh, 
independence, get it, <laughs> and I'm with him. <laughs> when will you tell that to them when you get back? <laughs> Again, if I may come back and be personal, my reactions to the play when it opened here in Chicago is so completely taken with the direction of Lloyd Richards, mm. incidentally, too. Yes, it's brilliant. And of course, the cast, but uh, the play's the thing. Come back to that again, and you. And the next question, we've sort of talked of Raisin now, and you, you have, I imagine, a number of projects in mind. If I don't want to uh, dig here, unless you feel free yourself, in what projects you're thinking of tackling? We haven't. Well, all things in the world, I have. Uh become involved in doing an opera libretto, which I do hesitate to talk about because I'm right. uh, <laughs> just uh, getting into it and terrified of it. I don't know a thing in the world about writing an opera, uh, but I'm going to do one with a young Negro composer in New York who I think is enormously talented and uh, imaginative in his music. We'll let that rest for a moment, and we'll see it. But since you mentioned opera, there was uh, perhaps you you were misquoted, or I want to get the New York Times quoted you. You 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 spoke of a certain irritation in seeing plays, so-called uh, plays about the Negro or such, written by people wholly re uh, removed yes, from the situation. Yes, yes. What was the cracking? Was one of wonderful one by Carmen Jones? Something you said about it was very funny. Well, there's you know I probably alluded to the fact that I've been struck that. Uh, the the whole concept of the exotic, you know, that in Europe they think that, the, well, the gypsy is just the most exotic thing that ever walked across the earth is because he's isolated from the mainstream of European life. So that obviously the natural parallel in American life is the Negro, <laughs> you know, very exotic. So whenever they get ready to do something like uh, a Bizet opera, which involves the gypsies of Spain, uh, it's translated, they think, very neatly into a Negro piece. And uh, I just think this is sort of a bore by now. That this is uh, it's very fine music, but you know uh, the cliches are there. I'm 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 bored with the cliches. Pretty wearisome by now. I don't think very many people realize how boring, aside from being nauseating, that that uh, stereotype notions are also very dull. I, you know, I think this this is said far too not often enough that uh, it isn't only a matter that. Porgy and Bess. I'm talking about the book now because, once again, this is good music. This is beautiful music. I think this is great American music in which the roots of our native opera are to be found someday. But the book, the, the Du Bois Haywood yeah, book, uh, not only is that offensive, you know, it isn't only that it insults me because it's it's a degrading concept and a degrading way of looking at people, but it's bad art because it doesn't tell the truth, and fiction demands the truth. You know, you have to give a many-sided character. In other words, there is no excuse for stereotype. Well, I'm not talking socially or politically. I'm talking as an artist now. Aesthetically, now it's exactly bad. that if if someone feels that this is a lie, you know, because it's just one half of me then the artist should shudder for reasons other than the NAACP, the responsible artist. Something you just said, art must tell the truth. I think so. It's almost the only place where you can tell it. <laughs> what about writing today, uh, whether it be drama, uh, 
I'm thinking of uh, more specifically. I'm, I'm big young Negro writers today. I mean, any hit you? I mean, there's John Killen's young mm. one, perhaps there. Well, there isn't a great deal happening. Uh, I've just started to read Frank London Brown's book, and I'm not equipped to talk about it because I'm, I'm just starting to get into it. Um, there's a young guy in New York who's been one of the exiles who's come home. We're starting a new movement against the 30s. Some of the American kids are coming back now from Paris and Rome. Uh, Jimmy Baldwin. Well, you know, he'd gone away. He'd got, he, he left. Died. He <coughs> went. He, enough. Did Baldwin do that, too? Baldwin is yeah. who I'm talking about. Oh, oh James Baldwin. James Baldwin, uh, who is back and who I think... I don't read novels that much, I'm ashamed to say, for somebody who wants to write one. But I think from what I've read of his essays and some of his fiction, that this is undoubtedly one of the most talented American writers walking around. And uh, if he can wed uh, his particular gifts, I think which are just way beyond most of us trying to write in many levels to uh, material of substance, then we have the potential of a great American writer. He's one that I think he of. He came back. This is interesting. Mm. I'm thinking, of course, of someone very definite, Richard Wright, of course. Yes, who didn't come back. No. And uh, who has not been just impressive in his output, in my opinion. Would you feel, since you said this, this last thing you just said, do you feel, this may sound a cliche, that I'm saying, away, away from roots, I hate to use the word, and yet... Richard Wright, who was so close and strong. No. You know why? Go ahead. Because, and I said this on television in New York recently, this thing of being away from one's roots. I was making a different point. What I was saying, somebody's, people are always talking about how don't get lost in a cause, you know, because this is what destroys art. And I've been obliged to remind people that for 200 years, the only writers in English literature we've had to boast about have been the Irish who come from an oppressed culture, you know, Shaw, O'Casey, from, from Jonathan Swift to James Joyce and so forth and so on. You name them in, in the last 200 years and they've been Irishmen, which I don't think is an accident, even though they aren't protest writers in the sense that we think of in the United States. Uh, but also, most of them have been writing outside of Ireland. In other words, O'Casey is writing his Dublin plays, you know, in uh, Devonshire in England, and they still ring and have good Irish flavor in them. The Irish don't seem to reject them in terms of, you know, being false, so I guess it's good. No, I think there must be some other reason why Wright deteriorated. Well, you've answered my question right there. That's beautiful, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I don't know what the reason is, because I think he had within him the possibilities to have been the greatest American writer, because what he had, I think, would have made William Faulkner uh, seem just peculiar, which of course is what he seems anyhow, in my opinion. Go but ahead. You, you, you just said, what do you mean by that? Well, I haven't even read that much Faulkner, but uh, I'm not impressed with obscurity. I think it's easier. For all I know, the man could be a genius. For all I know, he might be the reverse. I just can't tell from obscurity. Sooner or later, I have to be able to get some sense of organization and uh, treatment of material that lets me know that there's skill here or genius, you know. And I can't tell this from a, from a Faulkner. Of course, it matter from much of James Joyce. But at least his point of departure was one I could understand. 
uh, and Wright, of course, belonged to another tradition of American writing. I don't even think it was a conscious belonging, but he did. That, uh, you know, I think came to flower in things like Rapes of Wrath and uh, the novel of that nature. If my husband were here, he'd say Theodore Dreiser, actively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I'd like to see that kind of uh, panoramic power reemerge in the American novel. I think maybe it may come from a Negro novelist. Someone like Baldwin, who may have been away in that future. You don't know. I don't know if Baldwin's yeah. eyes are that wide. The gifts are there, you know. But if I his eyes are that wide, that's a beautiful <laughs> phrase. I like that. <laughs> I love that phrase. Well, it's obvious. He feels. I'm worried about what he sees. <laughs> you know, that that gets to be the problem. Well, I think it's obvious that uh, it's no accident that Raisin of the Sun came to be written by Lorraine Hansberry after we've been listening to her now. And I know this is late at night here at home. And I wish I'd suggest people read the current issue of The New Yorker. <laughs> and you can find there, too, the, the, the graciousness in in Miss Hansberry and the tremendous demands. What about success, this little goddess success? What does it do to you? It, it obviously deprives you of privacy to something. Well, right now it does. Yeah, it does. This one moment here. It does, except that it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and... Uh I'm enjoying it. I think it's important. I think there comes a time when you you know you pull the telephone out and you go off and you you end it. But for the time being, I'm enjoying every bit of it. I've tried to go to everything I was invited to. I I shouldn't even say this on the air, but so far I've tried to answer every piece of correspondence I get, which, as I said in the piece, gets to be about twenty and thirty pieces a day at this point. But uh, this. I don't have the right to be very personal about the reception to this play because I think the reception to this play transcends what I did or what Sidney Poitier or Lloyd Richards or Philip Rose or any of us connected with it. I think what it reflects at this moment is that at this particular moment in our country, as backward and as depressed as I, for instance, am about so much of it, there's a new mood. I think we went through eight to ten years of misery under McCarthy and all that nonsense. And uh, to the great credit of the American people, they got rid of it. And they're feeling like, make new sounds. And I'm glad I was here to make one, you know. Beautiful, make new sounds. That's the best of jazz men say that too, but in this case, certainly one of the most sensitive of writers says it. It's a close relationship. <laughs> I've often said that uh, the glory of Langston Hughes was that he... Uh, he took the quality of the blues and put it into our poetry. And I think when the Negro dramatist can begin to approach a little of that quality, he might almost get close to what O'Casey does in putting the Irish folk song into play. I'd like to. I think Lorraine Hansbury is on that road, certainly. Thank you very much. And is there anything you, uh, sort of a postscript, always allow an opening, anything else you care to say, anything, it, it doesn't matter, that you haven't said thus far? You mean quickly or a paragraph? No, no, as, as much time <laughs> as you want. I can always say something. I'd say this, that uh, I spoke of, of how I think there's a new affirmative political mood and social mood in our country having to do with the fact that people are finally even getting aware that Negroes are tired and it's time to do something about that question. That, but beyond that, in terms of the total picture, I'd also like to see a parallel to it in terms of the culture of our country. I can see no reason in the world why 
The American theater should be lined up on about six blocks in Broadway in New York City. I'd like to be see a little agitation to get uh, national theater and other art programs in this country so that the kids all over the United States can go see Shakespeare without thinking it's a bore, you know. Or Lorraine Hansberry <laughs> or <laughs> Eugene O'Neill. That's all. Well, and a double thank you for that, certainly. Lorraine Hansberry and the, uh, you people who have missed the play here during its pre-New York run, go to New York, well, if you can get tickets, fine. But someday it'll return to Chicago. Obviously it will when the National Company, company comes and the original company. Lorraine Hansberry, playwright, human being, thank you very much. And uh, that was a rare archival uh, audio file of an interview uh, with Lorraine Hansberry uh, with Studs Turkle in 1959 uh, in Chicago. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, today. Uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to our program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to continue our focus on International Women's History Month in the next uh, two programs. We're going to close out with uh, Dinah Washington, and uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Back to me.